This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Liz Lunier. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. On this week's episode, we're discussing connectivity in conjunction with this year's Mobile World Congress. With the world becoming more reliant on data and connectivity, new solutions are being developed to address the digital divide in an increasingly connected world. To discuss this today, I'm joined by... Yes, good morning, Liz. I'm Richard Deakin, and I'm CEO of Stratospheric Platforms, and we're building a very high-altitude platform which effectively serves as a telecoms master. And... Hello, Liz. My name is Derek Long. I'm the head of the telecommunications sector at Cambridge Consultants, which is a part of Capgemini Invent. Well, gentlemen, Mobile World Congress is finally upon us. In the last edition, there was quite a lot of talk about edge computing, 5G, and all of the wonderful things that they've, they're they going to bring us. A year on, where do we stand? What was actually promised versus what was realized? Derek, let's start with you. Okay, so a lot has happened in the year since the last Mobile World Congress. So things like the the edge compute has moved along considerably. I think there's a far greater understanding of the of the capabilities that that edge compute brings. That's both from a network perspective, but also from a viewing the network as a platform for the delivery of applications as well. So so considerable progress there. I think also we have to bear in mind that the world has moved on considerably in the last 12 months as well. And so the the big questions, you know, for example, sustainability was important a year ago and it's even more important now. So there's a, you know, that's driving developments in, in many industries, including the telecommunications industry. Another thing which I would highlight as um, growing in the, has grown in the last 12 months is the the desire to overcome the digital divide. There's an in- increasing desire to uh, provide the best kind of telecommunications connectivity wherever you are. You should not be disadvantaged because of your um, you know, where you're located geog- you know, geographically or uh, this kind of thing. And you should always have access to the best form of telecommunications, 5G communications effectively, uh, irrespective of your location. So I think there's an even bigger focus on that than there was was in the last MWC 12 months ago. You know, you say digital divide, and you were talking about, you know, the idea that in terms of 5G and connectivity, there really is inconsistent coverage creating that digital divide. So I know, Richard, you're trying to explicitly address this. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, well, I think, I think the global connectivity agenda is becoming increasingly important, actually, not just for sort of fixed access for half the world's population that still has no internet connectivity. But I think increasingly we're seeing the need and the demand for connectivity in disasters, in earthquakes that we've seen recently, in hurricanes and, and typhoons, where everything really comes back down to having decent communications. And there's there's a lot of challenges and opportunities there. I think the industry now is expanding from just thinking about what you can do with a terrestrial mast to more of a holistic approach where the vision is more around being able to connect anywhere in the world under any conditions and just connect without knowing whether you're connecting to a satellite, a mast, a high-altitude platform. And that technology, I think, has really been moving at pace. Certainly, if I reflect back since the last Mobile World Congress, there have been significant advances just for stratospheric platforms on our side. We've done the world's first 
5G demonstration from the stratosphere. And we're looking at capabilities now with our platform that, for example, can cover 15,000 square kilometers without any uh, white spots on the ground at all. Derek, what do you see here in the space with these new changes and these updates? Is there anything that you want to add? Yeah, I think it's uh, th- there's another element which has evolved as well over the over the well not only over the last twelve months, but in terms of the the networks and network architectures we see, there's a gradually increasing level of complexity. One of the things that five G brought with it is not quite the right way, but it has a greater level of credibility for small cells, really. So five G is is as much a small cell technology as it is a macro cell technology. And then what's come recently with LeoSat networks and constellations, and then also with with HAPS, such as the one that SPL is developing, is that we now have a multi layer network architecture, small cells. Um, you know, potentially a millimeter wave, macro cells that we know from previous generations of um, cellular technology, and now these are being integrated with a more non-terrestrial network such as such as HAPS, for example, and not only integrated in a in a manner which which might be awkward, they are seamlessly integrated so that from your smartphone you would not know whether you're connected to you know small cell, macro cell, or or HAPS. Yeah, I think I think Darren makes a good point there. Certainly, when we did the demonstrations last year in Saudi Arabia, in the middle of a very remote area on the Red Sea coast, you know, users were able to turn on the standard five G handset, and even with our limited test setup, we're able to connect at speeds of around ninety megabits per second. And the production version will enable users to connect at around two hundred megabits per second. The latency is amazing. We, we measure just one millisecond additional uh, latency up to the stratosphere and back. So I think the future is very exciting there in terms of some of these new technologies and the connectivity that will be available for people that uh, hitherto have um, uh, not had the uh, luxury of being connected to internet and communication systems. So if I could just pick up on the on the point there that Richard made about the low latency, I think as we go forward, that's going to become ever more in, in focus. So if we look at the kind of next generation applications, for example, the metaverse, low latency and reliable latency, so predictable latency, is going to be really important to make sure we get a, 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 you know, a really nice consumer-grade quality of experience for from the network for, to support those um, you know, metaverse type and immersive uh, services. The other thing that's going to be interesting there is more in the, let's say, more in the industrial type of applications. If you've got applications that involve the control of robots or the control of uh, cars, you know, autonomous cars and that kind of thing, and vehicles, you're going to need that low latency as well. It's really, really important to to have uh, an important component of the quality of experience. Yeah, I think another interesting area that we've been doing a lot of work on with uh, drone companies and aviation authorities, of course, is low-level drones. There's been a lot of work going on in recent years around drone deliveries, for example, or um, air taxis. And of course, the safety and assurance side of operating those at low level really starts with having good communications. And at the moment, if I look at the rather sort of patchy telecoms coverage and patchy because of buildings and ground obstacles and so on, the best way to provide ubiquitous coverage uh, to get to the required safety standards is really beaming the signal down from on high. So something like stratospheric platforms has got a uh, pretty good uh, 
uh, advantage when it comes to providing that very low latency, uh, high quality connectivity. Um, autonomous cars as well, where you're looking at high speed connectivity and safety critical decision making. Um, all of these sort of things really hinge on low latency, high quality communications. And I think, you know, that really now is where the industry is very much focused, moving on not just from providing connectivity, if you like, but looking at what is important in providing connectivity to all of those use cases. There are three things that, you know, I think that people are looking for when it comes to, you know, telecom communication, and it's reliability, affordability, and consistency. So you're talking about this new technologies. What are what are some of the issues you see that are impeding the industry currently achieving reliability, affordability, and consistency today? Reliability, affordability, and consistency. Let, let's let's start with affordabilities, which is the ability to afford these services is ever you know it's always a, it's always a, a question. And as we move up into these new applications that I mentioned, you know, immersive applications and metaverse and so on, they're just going to consume more and more data. So even though you get a better quality of experience and it's you know, overall uh, superior to what we've experienced in the past, it is also going to consume much more data. So we're going to want to expect to pay the same for it, despite the fact that we're consuming more data in order to provide that. So affordability has to move in, in the opposite direction in lockstep to the, the improvement in, of, um, of bandwidth and the quality of experience. Then your your other points here with consistency and reliability. So over the last 10 to 15 years, maybe, we have become increasingly um, reliant on our access to digital services and to, to data and to digital content. People in my stage in life make jokes about their children and how they, uh, you know, how they live online and, and so on. And we make jokes about these things, but it's really not a joke. That is the future of the world. We are becoming more and more... Uh, uh, reliant on digital service services and digital services are adding more and more value to uh, to non-digital services that we had previously so that they're becoming more and more integrated it's an, it's an important thing this means therefore then that reliability is is becoming implicit not spots are no longer allowable you can't you just can't have that you have to have the the connectivity um and um and the consistency as well so if you're just to take the example that, that Richard mentioned a, a minute ago about the autonomous cars, autonomous car needs to have reliable, good, consistent connectivity when it's driving through a city centre, and also when it's driving from one city to the next, you know, th you know, across the fields, it has to have. It, it's part of the you know our, our future world. And and you raise an interesting question there as well as about affordability, and I think um, one of the things that we were quite interested to explore fairly early on in, in the development of our system was um, the issue of energy. And I think, obviously, over the past year, the issue of energy, energy cost and energy availability, has, been, has become increasingly important. And telcos use um, a lot of energy. I mean, certainly for some of the European telcos that we've been talking to, they use around 1% of the country's national energy power. Um, which is a huge amount. Um, and we have found that when we've done the energy calculations for providing telco services from the stratosphere, because you have an unencumbered view of the ground, you're not having to use power to, uh, to push through buildings, trees, around hills, and all that good stuff. And the, uh, the modeling that we have done and the tests that we've undertaken suggests that we use around 80% less power 
uh, per megabyte or whatever um, measure you want to use, providing services from the stratosphere sphere. So potentially there's a huge opportunity for telcos to save power as well, which is becoming a really important part of their cost base also. So this is a bit of an unintended benefit as we look at new um, areas of uh, power supply. Our uh, high-altitude platform, for example, is powered by hydrogen, and the exhaust is water vapour, so it's all very friendly. But importantly, hydrogen, green hydrogen, can be free because the ingredients of uh, hydrogen, if you like, are water and power. And if I look at... Um, Let's say an example for the UK, we'd need just nine offshore wind turbines to produce enough power to create that liquid hydrogen for a fleet of aircraft to cover all of the UK. Um, so potentially it could be very cheap and very green and very low energy. So there's some significant uh, additional uh, benefits there as well for telcos to think about. Maybe I could just add something to that. So um, our our involvement in the SPL project was to design uh, a sophisticated antenna. So it's a it's an antenna that has to meet a number of criteria. The, the first thing is uh, Richard mentioned the very high uh, coverage area that can be attained from from the HAPS. So in order you need to have an phased array antenna in this case, which has many beams. Uh, hundreds of beams which you can then use to provide the coverage over that large area. This antenna has to be built with a um, a size and a weight profile which is then can be carried by the HAPS uh, and without impacting the the flight duration of the, of the HAPS as well. So it's so it's lightweight and consumes a, a low amount of energy certainly in comparison to you know terrestrial equivalents and then the fine final component of that is that it's really important that this uh, that the electronics the active payload on the haps does not require significant cooling because the cooling would be a, a uh, you know an additional drain on the energy budget of the haps so the antenna and you know the associated um, active equipment was designed so that it does not need active cooling and can just you know be cooled by the very thin air that is at the um, you know the sixty thousand feet twenty thousand meter altitude that that the haps fly at. That's fascinating. And how does that differentiate from you know from the LeoSat platforms then? Because you talked a little bit about the terrestrial, but what about the LeoSat? Yeah, I think I think there are a number of um, key differentiators, if you like. The first one with the, with the LeoSat, of course, you can't connect your handset to a LeoSat. You know, you need you need a satellite receiver and then rebroadcast on Wi-Fi frequencies, or you need a satellite handset. So from a consumer point of view, and reaching you know half the world's population that's still unconnected, satellite connectivity really is an unaffordable luxury. The advantage of something like a HAP and the antenna that uh, Cambridge Consultants have developed uh, with us is that you can connect your handset straight to the high-altitude platform. You can think of our high-altitude platform as a telecoms mast, but just at 60,000 feet. Um, so there's obviously been a lot of thought that's gone into that. Um, in addition, um, ours provides significantly greater speeds than LeoSat, so users will experience connectivity speeds of around 200 megabits per second, uh, way above anything that a satellite could provide. And then, of course, we come back to the latency side of things, where we're looking at an additional one millisecond compared with typically around 40, 40 milliseconds for, for LeoSats. So this is a very different capability. Um, and again, just to give you an example for the UK, so one of our high-altitude platforms provides as much bandwidth as an entire Leo constellation does for all of the UK, just from one hap. 
So the capabilities are significantly better from a consumer point of view. And that time differential, that latency differential, what kind of an impact does that really have? If you can put that in, you know, basic terms. Well, I think for safety critical decision making, um, it's essential. And, and in fact, if I look at the sort of safety certification processes for autonomous cars and for drones, um, that 40 millisecond gap is um, not going to cut it when it comes to adding up all of those delays and communications to and from the ground on multiple uh, on multiple systems uh, where, where safety is an issue. Um, from a consumer point of view, there are all sorts of other uh, less significant issues, but I guess if you're gaming or doing anything like that, um, again, 40 millisecond delay is... Uh, quite a significant disadvantage. But essentially, it comes down to safety-critical systems. But I think that we've overcome that now with demonstrating just an additional one millisecond from the stratosphere. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. And do you see this as a complementary solution to the existing gaps in the market? Or is this really the future technology of connectivity? Yeah, that's a great question, Liz, actually. So the the answer is it can do both, if you like. So um, Derek mentioned that the antenna has hundreds of beams. In fact, we can create up to 500 individually steerable beams. So if you have a really odd-shaped white spot on the ground, um, we can create a beam precisely the shape of that white spot. We can do other very creative things. Uh, for example, we've modelled the uh, M25 motorway around London, and you can create a beam shape, a donut shape, the same as the M25 motorway, for example, and pretty much any other shape that you want to create. So I think from that point of view, um, we've got uh, some great advantages in terms of the service that we can provide, which is uh, very different to anything that you'd be able to get from a terrestrial mast. Um, I should add that some of our customers, for example, uh, folks that we've been working with in Saudi Arabia, in Indonesia, have vast areas where there's still no telecoms masts. So what we can do with our system is just provide area coverage, if you like. Um, so you, 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 can, you can mix and match all of this. You can vary the power and the bandwidth in each of the beams. So as I say, you can go from covering sort of jungles and deserts that have got no coverage through to doing very precise patterns to fill in white spots. So it's a very versatile system. Gotcha. Derek, is there anything you want to add? So really, you've got two kinds of deployments. There is one where there, where there is no alternative, so rural areas and so on, where you're you're providing service for maybe the, the kinds of companies and the people that live in those areas and, and the vehicles that are traveling through them, of course. Um, and then also it's a, a, a backup service or backup platform for areas where you, know, you, you do have coverage, where, for example, you need to have high capacity, which will be provided by small cells, but then you also need to provide a, a you know a lower cost backup service in areas where the small cells don't provide provide their coverage. So, so really, you've got two areas of application there. The important thing from a quality of service point of view that I mentioned earlier on, if you want to make sure that for the you know for the con, the, the customer, whether that is a consumer or an enterprise, that they they see a, a this consistent service, seamless service across this, and this is where. You know, intelligence comes into play into the into the network to provide provide you and your your particular application that you you're using at that moment in time is is given the the appropriate quality of connectivity and quality of experience that it needs in order to to run its service. 
you know, I heard you guys talking a little bit earlier about, you know, different types of energy to be used and things like that. And one of the benefits of the technology we're talking about today, you've mentioned is sustainability. Are there any specific features that make it more sustainable than traditional methods, whether it comes to battery life, power consumption, other things? Because you're creating a lot of data, which does take up energy as well. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Um, on, the, on the subject of sustainability, that's a really interesting angle. And um, it's worth mentioning when we started the project back in 2016, hydrogen was seen as a bit of an exotic fuel. But of course, when you've got an aircraft up in the stratosphere, the key thing that you need is power. Power for the aircraft to station hold and power to provide sufficient capability for this um, amazing antenna from CCL. And effectively, what we've done is to build the aircraft around a hydrogen power station. If, if, if I compare ours with solar, I mean, typically a solar powered high altitude platform can pro- provide around 100 watts of power to the antenna. Um, ours can provide over 22 kilowatts of power 24 seven for a whole week. And, and that really is a differentiator when it comes to the sort of capability that a hydrogen powered, um, HAP can deliver to the ground. Um, in terms of the sort of fuel source and things, um, again, when we started, there was a lot of debate around hydrogen infrastructure, but increasingly, um, airports are now looking to put in hydrogen infrastructure for, um, hydrogen powered commuter aircraft. Obviously, the automotive industry is doing a huge amount of work on um, on uh, future cars. Uh, we've got um, Airbus um, planning for the next generation of airliner to be powered by hydrogen. And from our point of view, where we're looking to operate from fairly small airfields, we've done quite a lot of work, interestingly, with um, the automotive industry, where you can get a big ISO shipping container, uh, and there are systems out there that are clever enough that you put water and electricity in at one end and you get hydrogen out at the other end. So, so now hydrogen power stations are very small, compact and portable, actually. So I think a lot of these challenges are really being overcome. And certainly the modeling that we've been doing from an operational point of view suggests that the hydrogen side is going to be uh, pretty straightforward in terms of delivering that to the aircraft. So that's really exciting to be able to have free, green, sustainable fuel. You know, it's um, it's quite a revolution, I think, in, in terms of power compared with um, the costs and environmental challenges for telcos today. Wow, that's really impressive. Derek, is there anything that you want to add? Again, I can only you know, kind of substantiate that. So the use of of you know, green hydrogen as a as a power source, I think, is is also increasing in in interest in, across the industry. And we're seeing you know, hydrogen powered drones and and small aircraft coming into play as well. I was going to add to that that the um, the whole area of sustainability and re- reduced. Um, Carbon footprint or reduced energy consumption is is a, is a, or the solution to it is has got a number of layers. So the first first you could say is the provision of a of a zero carbon fuel, so hydrogen. Um, the second would be 
the development of um, very high capacity and low energy consumption equipment for you know as i mentioned with the uh, the antenna early on is designed in a particular way so at cambridge consultants we are well known for our ability to develop high performance technologies such as that antenna um, and but one to go one step further and this is also something that we'll be demonstrating at mobile world congress is the the use of of intelligence so in this case artificial intelligence to be able to optimize the quality of experience that you as a user uh, can achieve with your applications given the available infrastructure. So if the capacity in the network is is reduced, for example, or you want to use it more efficiently um, and uh, increase the utilization of your network asset, we have developed algorithms and we'll be demonstrating them at Mobile World Congress to illustrate how we can get a greater level of experience out of that out of the available infrastructure. And this combines then, if you can improve that efficiency, then you require less infrastructure uh, in order to get the, you know, the greater increase your efficiency. You know, I think looking ahead, I mean, we've been, um, we've been looking at some interesting areas with uh, Cambridge consultants around um, the future of manufacturing, for example, and uh, uh, the use of sort of single crystals, crystals in transistor chips, which result in significantly less power consumption than current uh, manufacturing methods. Obviously, manufacturing in space is a few years away, but um, it's exciting to see what the vision might hold in terms of reducing the power that we would need for the sort of antenna capabilities that the aircraft has. This is absolutely fantastic, gentlemen. But the question everybody's going to ask is, how much does this cost? Is this new technology, it's more sustainable, but what is it for, what does it look like from a cost perspective? Are they cheaper to manufacture, launch, and maintain? What, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so it depends a little on the uh, use case in terms of the actual sort of costs. But um, I guess the starting point here is to um, highlight that one of our high-altitude platforms, with all of that hydrogen power and those 500 beams that we were talking about earlier can do the same job as 450 telecoms masts on the ground. So, I mean, you begin to get a bit of a feel for the, the, uh, the cost balance between building and operating 450 masts compared with a single hat. Um, the, the, uh, high altitude platform itself is, um, pretty cheap. I'm not going to go into the figures, uh, on, uh, you know, today. Um, but it's designed to be uh, manufactured in a highly automated way and um, remain in service for about 20 years. So it has a very long uh, amortization period. And if I look at the sort of capex and opex uh, costs of towers, this is a very attractive proposition, typically for the telcos that we've been working with. Um, it's not unusual to see uh, overall uh, cost saving around 75% by doing it from the stratosphere compared with terrestrial towers and that very expensive energy consumption that we were talking about earlier. So I think that this is a step change in terms of capability, step change in terms of cost, and a step change in terms of coverage, which we really do hope is going to go some way to providing coverage, not just for the uh, half the world's population that's not yet connected, but even the areas that Derek was mentioning, such as sort of urban and rural areas. Um, I think we're all very familiar with the uh, frustration of stepping out of the house into the car and having no signal. And, um, you know, for the UK, again, as an example, we could cover all of the UK in high quality 5G broadband with just 24 aircraft. 
So it really is a game changer from that point of view. And we're, we're very excited about bringing those benefits and that, that, that cost shift, uh, that new uh, cost paradigm uh, to the industry over the next few years. That's, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, just let's talk about that connectivity thing, because you mentioned that you could cover, you know, the entire UK with the 24 aircraft. In today in Europe and the US, we have a lot of consistent coverage. Um, and it's, it's, typically a given, but we know that's always, that's not always the case in countries like Indonesia, where there's some issues that are caused by, you know, natural geography and other factors. What have you learned from other markets that you could see implemented worldwide? I think if I look at sort of the markets and use cases, I think um, one, of, one of the interesting areas, Liz, is the more versatile the telecom system, the more use cases this opens up. I mean, let me give you a particularly interesting one that we've been talking about at the moment uh, with a with a satellite operator, and this is, um, for example, for cruise liners. So at the moment, um, you can imagine connecting uh, passengers on cruise liners or any any ship, commercial ship, for example, is quite a challenge when you're out at sea. We could use a high altitude platform and follow a cruise liner around and provide really high quality broadband to those passengers. Again, that's not something you could do with existing telco systems. So I think that we're, we're keen to explore some of those other more uh, diverse use cases as the uh, system becomes uh, modeled and as we demonstrate the capabilities more. One thing that's interesting is you know, when you live in, in the UK or in Europe or North America, you, you have a, a certain view of the world. When you, when you go to countries outside those regions, then the your, your worldview changes, and the, so the, how to deploy additional technologies changes as well. So, um, for example, I, I've been involved in discussions um, over the last year or so where the deployment scenario for this is, is you know, there are alternative deployment scenarios. So we've des- described about permanent coverage for um, well, uh, permanent coverage for um, rural areas or as infill for for uh, urban areas, for example. But then there are there are others, and I think Richard mentioned at the beginning about the you know the use of, of the, pr- the provision of coverage during the, when there's uh, earthquakes or, or other, other natural disasters, for example. Um, one area which we've also encountered is that in a number of these countries where the infrastructure is perhaps not so good, that but there is nevertheless an ambition to you know extend coverage from you know for example fiber coverage when it's possible. That there's a deployment here, be able to quickly provide coverage. You know, there's a little bit of planning required, and then you can deploy your HAPS, and then you have you have tele, you have telecommunications connectivity within within days or weeks, let's say. Whereas to actually deploy the the physical infrastructure could take years. So it's a it's a very um, you know this this speed of deployment is also a very interesting characteristic of this solution. Um, the speed of deployment sounds like a great thing for telecoms, but what are some of the other key benefits of the connectivity that SPL is looking to bring to consumers and businesses, Richard? Yeah, I think um, just sort of coming back to the sort of the versatility side of things, um, I think there's a, there's a lot of benefits. I mean, um, Indonesia, Japan, the UK, for example, are all islands with uh, archipelagos and coastal communities, which are quite difficult to cover. I mean, our, our HAP can provide... Uh, really good 5G, 4G or 5G uh, coverage across all of those islands and indeed connecting the islands as well. We've done some work 
looking at um, modelling the uh, you know coverage of ferry routes. Uh, we've done some interesting work with the UK government around uh, Scotland, for example, where there are quite a few small rural communities that are not at all well served. And um, we can put individual beams on postcodes, basically. So, you know, um, one high-altitude platform can provide fixed wireless access for up to 16,000 properties just by putting a beam on those postcodes, which, again, is uh, quite an extraordinary capability. We can do some quite fun things, for example, in the morning if you have a, a city, you can you can move the coverage and the, 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 the bandwidth into the city in the morning with the commuters and then out of the city in the evening uh, as commuters leave the city. If there's special events, you can provide coverage for special events and, of course, uh, disaster recovery, as we, as we mentioned earlier. So I think there's a huge amount of benefits. I think, I think the cost benefits shouldn't be overlooked as well because um, if I look at uh, the challenge of connecting hard-to-reach communities, and by hard-to-reach we mean hard-to-reach uh, geographically but hard-to-reach financially, you know, this is a game changer when you're looking at a, a cost reduction of 75% in uh, service cost as well. So I think, I think this opens up a whole world of removing that digital divide that Derek spoke about earlier on. It really is quite transformational. And, you know, if I look at some of the interesting discussions that we've been having with satellite companies, this is quite an interesting way for some of those companies to act as a disruptor in the market. At the moment, in order to be able to provide uh, coverage, obviously you need your, your frequency license, but, but parking that for a moment, typically people will go to terrestrial tower companies and do a deal with those tower companies to provide coverage. We're now moving into a really interesting world where satellite companies, for example, are going to be able to compete against terrestrial tower companies with a solution that offers much better coverage at a much lower cost. And that is going to be a very interesting market dynamic over the next few years. Um, my, my personal view is that I think a lot of those tower companies are still asleep when it comes to the capabilities that are coming down the, the tracks. And we have had uh, some very interesting conversations with satellite companies about connecting our HAP to satellite networks. Um, in order to provide terrestrial coverage. Uh, that has only come about because of the advances in HAP technology in recent years. But that is going to be a real wake-up call for the rather sleepy uh, terrestrial towers companies. Well, I think what's really interesting with, with, with one of the cases that you were saying is, is that you can actually move these antennas quite easily, if that's what I'm understanding. So that in the sense that, you know, if you need to have more coverage in a specific area because there's a big onslaught of in individuals using that coverage, you can do it easily. You can't really move a tower, but you can move this antenna. Am I understanding correctly? That's exactly right, Liz. And, and, and the nice thing with the uh, antenna and the way it's all been programmed is that you can change the pattern in the air. You don't need to bring the high-altitude platform back to the ground to reconfigure it. You can be providing area coverage in the morning, a sports event coverage in the afternoon, and I mean, disaster recovery in the evening sort of thing. I mean, you just literally change it as you, as you fly around. So hugely versatile. And of course, if you've got fixed terrestrial network, there's no way you can do that. Yep. Just, just, just dumb question with this, with this technology, would it be able to withstand a hurricane as well with, you know, with big weather patterns? Cause I'm sure that people are thinking about that. Yeah. Um, again, another great question. So, um, 
the stratosphere is is way up above the weather essentially. So so the the challenge is obviously getting it up through the weather. You obviously wouldn't take it up through a hurricane. <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd plan ahead or take it off from a from another airfield. But um, up in the stratosphere, uh, there is wind, so you still need a fair amount of power to station hold. Um, but one of the advantages of this is that even when a hurricane was active underneath, you could still set a hab uh, up above the hurricane um, and on the right frequencies, um, even with that very heavy rain, you can still get the signal to the ground. Um, so for disaster recovery, you know, when cell towers are being knocked down on the ground, I think in um, uh, Louisiana, we did some uh, interesting work with the Federal Emergency Management Agency modeling uh, some scenarios there. I mean, around 80% of cell towers are typically sort of knocked down with some of those big hurricanes coming through. So you just sit this up above the weather and uh, turn it on and away you go. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So, gentlemen, um, you know, we need to, we're going to wrap up. So, you know, if you could give businesses one actionable piece of advice to take from this episode, what would it be? Okay, I think from our point of view, we're really excited about the progress that we've made uh, to date. Uh, we've done the world's first 5G uh, demo already last year. We've got some more exciting uh, demonstrations and con- contracts to announce this year. We would welcome the industry coming on board and sharing that exciting vision with us uh, and benefiting from all of those advantages that uh, I described during the podcast. Fantastic. And Derek, what would you like to share with our audience before closing today? The, the main takeaway for the audience here is that there are a number of evolving technologies which are having a significant impact in our lives. So, so cloud, 5G, artificial intelligence, and so on. Um, we're working with many of these technologies in order to not only evolve those and improve their capability, but also to embed them into other solutions so that we can get ever you know, greater performance out of the technologies that we have in our lives. So the example here with, with SPL and the, and the advanced 5G antenna that, that, we, um, that we've developed with them is an, is an example of that. And obviously we'd be happy to speak to others who, have, who are similarly ambitious and have you know, exciting plans that they wish to implement. From that conversation, it's clear that there is a lot to look forward to regarding the future of connectivity. A special thank you to Derek and Richard. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. We'll see you soon. <laughs>